Well, praise the Lord. Thank you for leading us in song. I want to say thank you personally for uh, the incredible hospitality that uh, we experienced in February, being here for the Simeon's Trust uh, Conference, um, as well as this morning. Uh, what a loving and warm body this is, and we really appreciate that. And in fact, uh, when I was here in uh, February for the Simeon's Trust Conference, we talked about the book of Ephesians. We dug into that book a little bit, and uh, that was very beneficial. In fact, a few months prior to that, as uh, Pastor Brent, who some of you know, he was here to preach a couple of months ago, we were discussing which book to preach through next, and um, we discussed the book of Ephesians. And so in God's providence, it worked out very well that uh, we were beginning to study the book of Ephesians, and we came out to the conference, um, and boy, did that help us and sharpen us to have those several days to discuss the book together before then preaching uh, through that book. And we just finished uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday, I preached our final uh, sermon in the book of Ephesians, and it was an overview of the whole book, sort of looking back uh, to where we had come from. And in fact, one of the things that Simeon's Trust does well is teaches pastors to look for what they call the melodic line of the book to be preached. This is an important part of Bible study, to study that book and figure out what is the big picture? What is God trying to teach with this book of the Bible? Because if we're going to interpret each part of the Bible rightly, then it's going to have to do, have something to do with the big picture of the book. And so as we sort of, sort of drilled down on that idea of the melodic line of Ephesians, what is God doing with what he is saying in this book? We came up with this saying, the church stands center stage in God's cosmic theater to display his glory through our salvation in Christ and submission in the Spirit. You see, the book of Ephesians has the lens zoomed all the way out. If you've ever played with Google Earth or Google Maps and you keep zooming out, pretty soon you can see the whole earth with just space in the background. And the book of Ephesians is sort of unique in its perspective because beginning to end, Paul sort of zooms out and gives us the gospel and, in fact, the world from God's perspective. And I think that this is what the book is driving at. Once more, the church stands center stage in God's cosmic theater to display his glory through our salvation in Christ and submission in the Spirit. That's what we are here for. God doesn't save individuals for no reason. God is purposeful. He's intentional. Um, in his sovereignty, God works providentially. So God has saved you, called you into his family, brought you together here into this church family at Redeemer for a purpose. And it's to display his glory, not just to the people here in Graham and beyond, but to the world and even specifically to the heavenly hosts who are watching. Now, that's a high calling. Now, you didn't know when you got up this morning and were rushing the kids around and trying to hold it together and just trying to get here on time and trying to repent of having to rush the kids in a way that was a little too harsh and and then finally getting here through the door and sitting down. You didn't know that what you're actually doing here has a cosmic purpose. 
that God has called you into his family, the church universal, and into this iteration of that family at Redeemer and Graham to put his glory on display even before the watching heavenly host. That's incredible. It's a high calling. Well, church, there's at least two ways that we could fall off the log in this as a church family. Number one would be conformity. Um, Conformity to the world around us. When a church begins to look and sound and act and feel and smell like the world, then no longer are we standing center stage in God's cosmic theater to display his glory by putting his grace on display. And sadly, there are many churches today that are conforming to the world. And when they do, God's grace does not shine out against the dark backdrop of society. But, you know, there's another side of the log you can fall off of, and it's the side of uniformity. I've been in some churches where it's a little scary. It's almost a little creepy because you walk in and what you sense is uniformity, meaning everybody sort of looks alike and talks alike and dresses exactly alike and um, they have all the exact same opinions on the scriptures and they come down in the same place on every gray area. And you know, when you see that, that's not actually a good sign. I think that conformity to the world and uniformity to one particular human standard are both ways to fall off the log as we seek to follow hard after Christ. In fact, uniformity, according to one dictionary, is the quality of lacking diversity or variation or the state of being the same as each other. But in God's design for the body of Christ, there is actually no room for uniformity. Unity, in fact, assumes diversity, but diversity coming together in harmony. And the word translated for unity uh, here in the New Testament means a state of oneness or of being in harmony. It's a state of oneness of being in harmony. Again, harmony assumes multiple diverse voices coming together in complementary ways. Some of our Kids sing in choirs. I've been blessed to enjoy um, singing in choirs, and I love going and hearing a good choir sing. It's one big combined sound, um, but it's not all the same note. If all the voices sang the same note, you would have uniformity. There'd be a sense of unity, but it'd be uniformity and not harmony. Um, You know, Everyone's singing the same note. It's, I guess, loud, but it's bland. But if you have the basses and the tenors and the altos and the sopranos, and they each sing a different note, but each note is carefully chosen by the composer, by the arranger to create a pleasing harmony, you still have one sound, right? You have unity, but not uniformity. The unity of harmony is beautiful. It's rich. It's bigger than any one singer can produce. A group singing the same note can never produce rich harmony and beauty that a group singing different notes together can. But our God is far too creative to write single-line melodies. His glory cannot be captured in a jingle. 
When God designed his church, when he pulled all of you together, he composed a symphony of rich harmonies. Right? He's gathering a multitude of very unique voices. And I've met many of you already this morning and others of you in February, and God has pulled together a diversity of unique people here. And that's exactly his design, and that's a beautiful thing. And each voice, each life is tuned by God's distinct gifting to harmonize together in the praise of his name. Now, that's what unity is, not conformity to the world, not uniformity to one human standard, but unity in diversity. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look together at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. You see, God composed the body. That's the language of 1 Corinthians 12, 24. And if I can twist that sense of composition for our illustration, God composed the body not for bland uniformity, but for beautiful unity in diversity. That'll be our theme that we'll trace through this passage. In Ephesians 4, 7, we're going to see that unity in diversity starts with Christ's gifts to each Christian. In verses 8 to 10, we'll see that unity in diversity is grounded in the drama of redemption. Unity in diversity is grounded in the drama of redemption. Then in verses 11 to 14, we'll see that unity in diversity produces maturity. In fact, where there is conformity or simply uniformity, that body will never move on to maturity because it is unity and diversity that produces maturity. And finally, in verses 15 and 16, we'll see that unity and diversity causes growth when every member is working properly. I've been blessed by this church, as I say, because I see many of these aspects of this passage, the truths of this text already at work here. And so my job this morning is to stir you up by way of reminder, as Peter says, and to encourage your hearts and to call you to go even further in discovering your gifts, and uh, which is really to say discovering the needs of this body and how you can continue to serve each other. So let's pray one more time, and we'll jump into Ephesians 4 together. Father, we thank you for your love And for your grace, we thank you that you are indeed rich in mercy. And because of that, Father, because of your love, you have moved toward us when we were yet dead in our sins and running from you. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have broken down our defenses and made us yours. I thank you for this body, Father, for Redeemer here in Graham and and the ways that you are clearly at work in hearts and minds of many drawing them together as one body and encouraging them to serve each other and to serve others in the community. Pastors who gather, Father, I thank you and I praise you. That is your grace on display to the world and even to the heavenly hosts. So, Father, guide us as we open Ephesians 4 together and look at just a few of the details of this text. Father, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts and minds by your spirit to make us more like Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's start here in verse 7. Paul says this, But grace was given to each one of us according 
to the measure of Christ's gift. Just a few things. Notice first that Christ is the giver of spiritual gifts. Christ himself is the giver of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are abilities given by God to each and every Christian for the purpose of serving others in the body. Now, years earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said that the Holy Spirit was the distributor of spiritual gifts. He said in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And the word apportion here means to divide or to distribute. Now, did Paul get confused? Did he forget what he wrote? Has he sustained one too many beatings? Well, no, he's saying the same truth, but he's fleshing it out for us across these letters. You put these passages together and we realize that the Lord Jesus dispenses gifts of empowering grace and the Holy Spirit distributes that grace, those gifts, according to God's plan to each and every member of the body. We see that the Trinity is involved in not only saving you, but also in gifting and empowering you to serve each other. But secondly, we see that Christ gives gifts to each and every Christian. Now, this is clear in the New Testament. Verse 7 says grace was given to each one of us. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And 1 Peter 4, 10 says as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now with that much repetition across the pages of the New Testament, God wants you to get this straight. Now listen, each one that Christ uh, rescues, each one that God rescues, Christ resources for service. This is important. Every person that God forgives, Christ furnishes for ministry. Each individual that God adopts into his family, Christ equips to help that family. And you are not an exception. Everyone God saves, Christ supplies to help his body. Now, people tell me not infrequently, Pastor, I, I, I believe that, I see it in the page, I know the word is inspired, but I just don't see that for me. I don't see how I could serve other people. I, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, first of all, we need to stop looking for one spiritual gift by name. Because you'll notice that throughout the New Testament, the gifts that are given are always a little different. They are representative lists. What we know is that God will empower each and every one of you to serve the needs of others in this local body. And I think the way that he will equip and empower you may change over time. I think that it changes according to the needs of the body, honestly. And you've seen this already. Maybe you just haven't noticed it. You might have seen it in your own life or the lives of others who serve in unique and diverse ways over time and you see God bearing fruit through that service. <laughs> so, Christian, don't obsess over what exactly, uh, what gift has God given me and how do I name it and how do I develop it? Come and look at your church family and say, where are the needs? And pray and ask God to help you to meet those needs and you will discover how God has uniquely gifted you to serve the body. You might envision a man with a large farm who drives around hiring people. And each person he hires, he immediately hands them the right tools to do the job that he is assigning them. 
It wouldn't make sense to send someone into the fields empty-handed. And the fields are white for harvest. So it is every time God saves a person. Christ dispenses grace And the Spirit distributes that grace specifically to outfit each member of this body to serve this body. Now, if you're still not sure whether God has gifted you uniquely, look at verse 7 one final time. It says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It is the Lord Jesus that is measuring out, meeting out specifically in a custom-tailored way His grace to all that he saves for the purpose of serving others. Christ custom fits each gift to each recipient according to his design. Stephen Fowle wrote, rather than thinking of grace as a supply of undifferentiated cloth, this verse encourages us to think of God's gift of grace as a precisely tailored suit that fits each of us perfectly. Imagine the tailor for a Broadway production. He not only custom fits each highly diverse set of clothes perfectly to each cast member, but every custom set of clothes complements all the others to create one beautiful, unified visual. And this is true for you, for each of you and all of you together here at Redeemer where God has placed you at the center of his cosmic stage to show his glory. If you are his child, God does not save anyone in a generic way. He saves each individual and then intentionally, specifically measures out gifts of grace to that individual for the purpose of serving others to put his glory on display. I hope the image of Christ as a custom tailor sticks in your mind because it's ridiculous. That's a strange picture, isn't it? I think it's a good illustration. And a lot of good illustrations, if you think about them too long, they're just too silly. But that idea of Christ as a custom tailor fitting his enabling, empowering grace for service for you, for each member of your church family, is a good picture to have in your mind. Maybe that image is just silly enough that you'll hang on to it and it'll bring you back to Ephesians 4 to look again. When you begin to feel like maybe God doesn't have a special purpose for you to serve in this body. Because he does. He does. He fits diverse gifts in precise measure to each person according to his plan. You have a unique part to play in this cast that no one else is specifically fitted to play. And that's important to remember. God in his sovereignty, in the outworking of that sovereignty and his providence, is not generic. So if he saved you and brought you here, it's for a a specific purpose. It's for a purpose to serve this body in an ongoing way according to the needs of the body. So unity in diversity starts with Christ's gifts to each person. And when Paul mentions the name of Christ here, and Christ is the last word in, in this verse here in the original, he seems to get caught up in a flourish of excitement. He does that. Does your heart ever leap at the sound of the gospel? You ever hear the name of Christ or hear the gospel rehearsed again and find that you're moved or excited? I hope that happens for you. It does for Paul all the time. And he launches into these torturously long sentences because he has all of these asides because his heart is overflowing. And I think at the end of verse 7, at the mention of the name of Christ, he gets excited and we get verses 8, 9, and 10. 
Um, it, following Paul is like trying to follow a rabbit on the run. There's a lot of zigging and zagging. So Paul will pick up his thought in verse 11, but we need to follow him through 8, 9, and 10. This is beautiful. And this is where Paul reminds us that unity and diversity is grounded in the drama of redemption. That's number two for you note takers. Look at verses 8 to 10. Therefore it says, and by it Paul means um, Psalm 68. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What a flourish. Now, what is Paul doing with Psalm 68 here? Why did gift giving bring this particular passage to Paul's mind? It's an interesting question. Well, in ancient history, when a king defeated his enemies in war, there was often a victory parade. You can picture this in your mind. The defeated king and his leaders were marched in shame through the streets in chains before the subjects of the winning city or country. The victorious king, who had put them to open shame, would then distribute the spoils of war to his loyal subjects. So the subjects received gifts from their king as they celebrated his victory, a victory that ensured their freedom and safety in an ongoing way. Now you can begin to see why this verse may have popped into Paul's mind as he's speaking to his amanuensis, probably pacing the room in his excitement. I don't know how else you produce these letters of Paul. If you're not speaking in an animated way, launching into these asides, remembering Scripture, this is what he pictures, and so he quotes Psalm 68. And there David is picturing God going before his people in this kind of a victory parade. Just as God delivered Israel from Egypt, he still goes before them, receiving gifts from among the conquered that he distributes to his people. The language of receiving is Psalm 68, 18, and the language of distributing is in Psalm 68, 12. It almost seems as though at the name of Christ, in the context of giving gifts to his people, I think Paul remembers this verse and it just bubbles out of him. Paul believes that Psalm 68 came to full and final fulfillment in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in verse 8, Paul says, it is Christ who distributes gifts to his followers in the wake of his triumphant victory at the cross and empty tomb. Jesus is the triumphant God of Psalm 68 who led a victory parade through the streets after defeating the enemies of sin and death. In verse 9, Paul says it was Christ who descended to the lower regions, the earth. What does that mean? Well, I think Philippians 2, 6 to 8 tells us where Paul says Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is a shameful, violent, uh, public death. 
Jesus descended to enter humanity to overthrow Satan's reign of sin from the inside by dying for that sin and being buried even in a tomb. Then in verse 10, Paul says it was Christ who then ascended far above all the heavens. He didn't stay dead. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20, Paul said that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. There's that cosmic perspective on display in Ephesians beginning to end. The Lord Jesus is the God of Psalm 68, one with the Father, triumphing over Satan and the demons over sin and death, distributing grace gifts to all of his children and being exalted to the right hand of the Father, where even Satan and the host of demons have to watch while we feeble humans, sinners turned saints, drink deeply from the cup of God's grace and bless one another. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's the full drama of redemption. Christ from heaven to earth to the grave to the empty tomb back in his ascension, his heavenly reign as he awaits return. And as Paul talks about gift giving here, I think Psalm 68 comes to the front of his mind and he says, I've got to, I've got to rehearse the gospel again. This is what God is doing. This is why he has gifted you. You are part of that cosmic drama of redemption. And serving each other is how you take your place on that cosmic stage here with this family to show the world what God is like and what Christ has done. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, It is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ leading in his triumphal train the devil and hell and sin and death, the great enemies that were against man and which had held mankind in captivity for so long, Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with and to conquer our enemies. And having finished his campaign and having routed them, he has returned to heaven, leading all these enemies captive and showering gifts upon us, his acclaiming people. If you are a Christian here this morning, God has set you free, not by a wave of his powerful hand, but by the full drama of redemption. God sent his only son as a human in every way like us, yet without sin. And God poured out his wrath toward your sins and mine on Christ who died on the cross in the process. And God raised him again on the third day in full victory over death and Satan and the sin by which you were held in slavery until you repented and trusted in Christ. And as a result of this incredible drama of redemption, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then you share in Christ's cosmic spoils of war. You've not only been set free from sin, you've been specially fitted for service. An essential, central result of your salvation is your preparation by Christ to serve his family. The drama of redemption continues and you have a significant part to play. Paul goes on to say that unity in diversity produces maturity. Number three, look at verses 11 to 14 with me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. To understand God's design and goal for unity and diversity, we need to look very briefly at the leaders, the saints, the unity, and maturity in these verses. And we're at cruising altitude here, covering this many verses in one sermon. So we're going to be noting the hills, not the trees. Also, I said, Ryan, how long do you usually preach? He said, brother, I try to go like 40 minutes or less. I said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I go a little longer. <laughs> but I told him, don't worry, I'm going to cut the notes down. I'm going to stick to the notes. I think I can do 40 minutes. So we're going to be at cruising altitude going through verses 11 to 14 here. And I think that helps. We can see the big picture as we look at the leader's um, the saints, the unity, and maturity in this section. Each of these would make a wonderful sermon, but we'll give them each a paragraph. First, Christ appoints leaders to his church. Important to remember that. Christ appoints leaders to his church. The word gave here, it means to appoint to special responsibility. It means to appoint to special responsibility. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. That's a foundation. So these first two gifts, given or appointed by Christ to the church, were temporary. If you see a church that's advertising its apostles or its prophets, well, that's a warning sign. Because apostleship and the gift and role of prophet were temporary foundational gifts in the New Testament, which we see the third office then is that of evangelist. Now, this seems to be those who take the gospel to new areas and probably refers to what we would call missionaries now. The fourth and fifth in this list, you'll notice that they're listed together. The other gifts get a the at the beginning, a definite article, but um, these last two, four and five, are crammed together with just an and. You notice that? Paul is referring to the office of pastor-teacher. This office is not temporary like apostles and prophets, and it's not itinerant like missionaries, but ongoing and local. So Paul is referring to pastors or elders as we still know them today, and he says that leaders in the local church are appointed by Christ and are gifts to that church. But what is their job? Well, he goes on in verse 12, and we realize that appointed leaders... Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see that in verse 12? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We tend to think that a pastor's job is to do the work of the ministry. And of course, that's true. But the pastor has one slice of that work with a particular focus in that work. Their job is more specific than that. Your pastor's job is to equip you to serve each other. And what happens when appointed leaders and then equipped saints begin laboring side by side for each other's good? Well, you get verse 13. 
you begin to find unity. When you have a gifted and an appointed pastor who meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and he labors alongside you, trying to train and equip and coach you in the use of the gifts that that God through the Son and the Spirit have given you, now you begin to see unity. Look at verse 13 again. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We only have time to mention that the unity we begin to share in when we serve together for each other's good is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not just generic unity. That definite article's there for a reason. It's a specific unity that's centered in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, we're told in Scripture. It's the body of truth that, that was given to us by the apostles and the knowledge of the Son of God. Right, So it's a unity that's centered in a common biblical understanding and a sharing together in the gospel. It's a specific unity, not a unity of just like general love or a unity of, I guess we all agree. That's not it. Um, those are false unities. A real unity is a rugged unity that's centered in proper biblical doctrine and in a shared experience of the gospel together. That's the unity being talked about. The faith, again, refers to the body of doctrine that makes up the Christian faith. Knowledge of Christ is our experiential relationship with him. So when the shepherds teach the word and the saints minister to each other well, then we grow, both in our shared understanding of God from Scripture and our shared experience of Christ in life. And what's the result of this kind of unity? When we begin to come together on those fronts, well, true maturity. That's what we see in verse 13 and 14. Finally, when appointed leaders and equipped members work together in unity, all can attain maturity. You see that? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. These are two contrasting pictures here. The first in verse 13 is that of a mature man. Right? The ESV choice of manhood, it is good because Paul's referring to a state of maturity, But I think that particular translation also obscures a picture that Paul may be painting intentionally. The language is singular in the original, something like, until we attain to a mature man, until we, the parts of the body, are all pulled together into one standing, stable, serving, new, mature man. I think this language harkens back to chapter 2, where the church is called one new man in Christ. One scholar said it refers to the summation of all believers in the one perfect man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the head and Christians as forming the body. And when appointed leaders and equipped members serve each other in loving unity, then each member begins moving toward Christ at the center. We retain our full diversity of gifting, of personality, of of backgrounds, as we attain to a shared unity 
in growing maturity. And verse 14 contains the exact opposite image. Instead of maturity and being pulled together to a central reference point, we get the opposite. Instead of growing together in one new man in Christ, Paul pictures being scattered apart in many directions like children. If we aren't unified in our diversity, we become like corks bobbing in the ocean or leaves blowing in the wind, slowly drifting apart and susceptible to the ever-changing influences around us. This is why it's so important to be involved in the local body. We're not safe apart from the unity in diversity provided by God in a local church. But when Christ-appointed leaders equip Christ-empowered saints to serve each other with the full diversity of gifts they've been given, the body grows in the unity of the faith and all the members grow closer to and better reflect Christ, their head. In this way, unity in diversity, number four, produces maturity. Unity in diversity produces maturity. I want to show you, finally, um, that was number three, rather, number four, Where do we go from here? Paul sort of summarizes the passage. And by this point in the passage, if we're following his logic, he really just summarizes. He doesn't introduce a lot of new material in these last two verses. And what we see, number four, is that unity and diversity causes growth when every member is working properly. Look at verse 15 with me and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, he says, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now those are two verses to have written on an index card and taped up in your house somewhere. Uh, These verses will quickly clarify a lot of questions about your role in the local body. It's very clear these are challenging verses. This is a logical conclusion to the passage. You know, a baby's body has to grow into the size of its head. (laughs) What a blessing to be celebrating the birth of new life here um, in the congregation. You ever notice that when you hold a newborn baby, their head looks ginormous? That's part of what makes them so utterly adorable. If you measure the size of that noggin relative to the rest of the body, you'll notice that it's quite large. And what happens is as the baby grows, the rest of their body grows together, and it begins to uh, then become a little more proportionate to the size of that head. And something similar is happening in every church family in the world throughout history. You see, Christ isn't changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, thankfully. Christ is perfect, and he saves all of us and gathers us together as the members of his body. We, however, have much room to grow, don't we? And so if we could step back and look at the picture of our church family here at Redeemer, at Living Hope, anywhere, and it was painted proportionately, Christ the head, would be a lot bigger than us as the body together. And yet our goal is to grow proportionately together with each other into 
that head. Paul's focus in these last two verses is no longer on the gifts of each member of the body, but on the working of those gifts. And devoted to God's church, Sinclair Ferguson said, um, uh, in the New Testament, he said, the New Testament nowhere joins the personal possessive pronoun my to the word gift. It does join it to the word ministry or service. The difference, he says, may seem slight, but it can be significant. I want you to hear that again. Nowhere does the New Testament join the personal pronoun my to the word gift. But it does join the word my to service or ministry. So Christian, it's not necessarily the right question to ask, but what is my gift? I don't know. Ryan won't know. You may not be able to help each other. Some people have such an obvious gift, and it fits one of the ones listed in the New Testament. You say, there you go. That person is a gifted teacher. Fine. But I don't think that's how it works for most people. I think that we learn, we need to learn to ask not, but what is my gift? So I can name it and write it down and read books about it. We need to ask, but what is my ministry to this body? And you know how you discover that? By asking, what are the needs of this body? Where does this body need to be served? Who needs to be encouraged and built up and loved? Those are questions to ask your pastor and your elders and each other. Then when you've identified some needs, you start praying. You say, Lord, which of these needs could you use me to meet? And you will find that God will answer that prayer and will give you the joy of service. And as you do, you will grow in maturity as those that you are serving also grow in maturity because now both of you are drawing closer to Christ together. Ferguson goes on to say, service is not a matter of others recognizing our gifts. Service is a matter of us recognizing others' needs. Service is not a matter of doing things for others at our own convenience. Service is a matter of helping others when they are uh, inconvenienced. Service is not a matter of feeling we have special gifts. Service is a matter of us seeing that others have very special needs. Service is not an optional extra for a member of the church. Service is written into the definition of being a member of the church. I'm going to leave you with one more observation because I'd rather leave the text ringing in your ears than my words always. Look again in your body, back at verse 16. Notice, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Circle the word joint in your Bible and spend some time this week thinking about that, praying about that. We think about the Parts of the body being supplied to the body to make up the body. But Paul here says joints. Now, what is a joint? I mean, we understand what that is intuitively, but if we could take a microscope and keep looking closer and closer at the center of a joint, what we would find is there's nothing there. A joint is the space where two parts come together. (laughs) And I think that this is intentional in the text here. I think that Paul is doing something. Now, these words can also mean ligament. It can mean that which holds two parts together. But it's still the creation of a joint. I think that there is a profound and relational element to this verse that I seldom hear brought out in commentaries and sermons. 
So I want you to think about this. Not only what are the needs in this body that God may be equipping me to meet, but also what are the joints that I am a part of in this body? Do you know what a joint is in the local church? It's two people who despite their different backgrounds, maybe different ages, maybe different opinions, maybe one is old and one is young and one is mature and one is not, a joint is when those two people with all of their diversity of gifting and personality and background come together in a spiritually intentional relationship. That's what a joint is. Now, let me not scare you with the word spiritually intentional. You know what that looks like? It looks like getting out of your comfort zone just enough to say, let's get lunch together. It looks like barbecue with somebody that you've never actually had a meal with. Now, here's what's scary. I find this in every single body that I've ever been a part of. If we were to go around this room and take a survey, I guarantee you that there are people in this room that have never shared a meal one-on-one or maybe as couples with someone else in this room. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Because I already know that's the case. So with every joint with which it is equipped means that you look around the room and you say, you know what, who can I join myself to in a more simple relational way? Who can I get coffee with this week and say, how can I pray for you? Who can I get lunch with? Look, you're going to eat lunch. Probably seven times this week you're going to already eat lunch. Why not find someone in this body and say, brother, sister, look, I'm embarrassed to say that after six months here, a year here, two years here, uh, we have never reached out to each other. We have never got a meal together. Uh, We've never had you over to our house. I want to urge you, I want to challenge you to make one of those significant connections this week. It is not a big deal. Get together and enjoy the food you were already going to eat and say, tell me your testimony. Tell me your story. What are you excited about at this point in your life? How can I pray for you? That are the the joints with which every body is supplied. But you've got to become part of that joint and go out of your way to hold those joints together. That's how the body becomes cohesive and grows more and more into the head. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your love and and for your word. I thank you that in your providence, Father, you have drawn together these wonderful saints here at Redeemer. What a blessing, Father. I've personally been blessed by many here in their service in February and this morning. I thank you for what you're doing in their hearts and minds and lives, for what you're doing through this body as a whole. And Father, I pray that you would continue to work by the power of the Spirit to draw this body closer and closer together in service of one another for your glory. Father, I pray that they would shine brightly and unmistakably in this community until people begin asking on regular occasion, what is up with you people? What makes you so joyful? Why do you stand out as so different? Father, I pray that you would do this for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.